Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to The Playlist Podcast. I'm Charles Barfield, Managing Editor of The Playlist and one of your regular hosts of the podcast. In this episode, I'm sharing an interview I recently conducted with Oscar-winning filmmaker Morgan Neville, where we discuss his latest film, Roadrunner, a film about Anthony Bourdain. As the title implies, Roadrunner is an exploration of the life and tragic death of chef-turned-TV star Anthony Bourdain. The film covers his rise as a chef with a best-selling book and transformation into a TV personality that traveled the world and gained an immensely large number of adoring fans. The documentary also dives into Bourdain's eventual death as he died by suicide in 2018 to the shock and dismay of his friends, family, and fans. During the discussion, we talk about Neville's approach to the film, having previously worked primarily in music-focused docs. We also go over Anthony Bourdain's legacy and the incredible heartbreaking interviews that are showcased throughout the feature. And finally, we do talk about the food icon's shocking death and how Neville worked out how much of the film should be focused on the tragic ending. But before I get to the interview, I got to tell you the Playlist Podcast is part of the Playlist Podcast Network which includes Be Real, The Fourth Wall, Deep Focus, and more. And if you want to find us, you can check your podcast app of choice, whether that's Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Anchor, Stitcher, or anywhere else you find your favorite shows. So now I'd like to throw it to my interview with Morgan Neville, where we talk about Roadrunner, a film about Anthony Bourdain, which arrives in theaters on July 16th. Enjoy. I'd love to uh, talk to you about the genesis of this movie because you've covered quite a, a number of musical stories and icons in the past. And yes, Roadrunner is a documentary about a chef turned TV star, Anthony Bourdain, but he's kind of a rock star in a weird way himself. So did you approach uh, Roadrunner differently than you would telling the story of like Iggy Pop and the Stooges or Johnny Cash? I mean, in a weird way, I feel like I start all my films often through music. I mean, when I did film like 20 Feet from Stardom, uh, the first thing I did was build a soundtrack, you know, before we made the film. Um, but even a film like Mr. Rogers' Won't Be My Neighbor, you know, he was a piano player and the sense of rhythm and music was really important to that. And I know, and, and I'm a musician and I've made music films. And so it's a way of helping me get a window into somebody's taste and energy and everything else and so you know with this film I put together a playlist that was almost 19 hours long wow of, of every song Tony ever mentioned anywhere you know <laughs> um you know in every podcast every book uh and and then I shared it with everybody working on the film and and pretty much all the songs in the film come from that playlist too wow. so I was trying to kind of get a vibe with it but but the rock star thing is interesting because you know he kind of helped kick off this whole era of us thinking of chefs as rock stars and everything else. And he definitely lived that part, you know, and his heroes were people like Keith Richards and Iggy Pop. And, um, and having made films about people like Keith Richards and Iggy Pop, I came to understand that there was a real difference <laughs> between them is, and that, um, you know, somebody once said, 
when I when I was reading everything I could about him, somebody said, "Oh, he's a he's like Apollo in uh, Dionysian drag," <laughs> and and you know that when you unpack what that means, you know that the idea of kind of the rock star like a Keith Richards or Iggy is that they're they really don't care about anything. Like they kind of float above our earthly concerns. They don't care how they look. They don't care what people say. And they're really kind of almost enlightened in like a Buddhist sense um, with how they see the world. And Tony cared about everything, like every tweet, every review. Um, And in that way, he actually is way more like Johnny Cash, who was like that. Because Johnny too was somebody who like wore his flaws on the outside, you know, who had been an addict, who had recovered, who was kind of, who also had that ability to appeal to people of vastly different backgrounds that people could see something of what, of themselves or what they liked in him as a character, you know, that he was, um, you know, kind of a prism in that way. Yeah. And so in a weird way, I I feel like, yeah, the Tony was really more Johnny Cash than uh, Iggy Pop. That's interesting. I don't know that very many of uh, Bourdain's fans would would kind of make that correlation, but that's interesting. Um, you mentioned that he has had this uncanny ability, kind of to to cover a wide swath of fan bases. Like, you know, when when his when news of his passing like was made, it was uh, kind of like everybody that watched him kind of felt like they lost a friend. And, and my father-in-law and my wife still can't talk about Anthony Bourdain without getting teary-eyed. So what do you think it is about Tony, as you call him, that made him this sort of, uh, that elicits this sort of reaction out of people? Um, because again, he's not like the cuddly teddy bear guy. He, well, uh, it's that he played himself and that, you know, everything he did was about him as a character going through something, his books, his shows, it's always always about his subjective take on the world. And, and because he was always himself, and you, know, you could say how much of himself was the TV Tony versus the real Tony. And there wasn't too much of a distance between those things, but, but I think people felt like they knew him. And you know, unlike being a movie star, where if you might see them somewhere, you, you know, would maybe point, but you would probably wouldn't approach them. But you can imagine anybody that saw Tony Bourdain had to go up to him because everybody felt like they knew him. And Bourdain always was, you know, respectful and, you know, and would talk to people who came up to him. I mean, it happened endlessly, you know, but I think he had this relationship where people felt like, I know this guy, I can buy this guy a beer. We could sit down, we could talk about anything. Like, you know, and the kind of a lack of pretension and just like a kind of a vulnerability, I guess, at times. Um, And then I think his death, you know, I, I know from all the people in his life, the people that worked on the show with him, you know, everybody was blown away by the the kind of breadth and depth of the reaction to his death. And I think, I think Tony kind of encouraged everybody in his world to remain in as much of a bubble as they could, that there was never a sense of, oh, you know, I, 
I'm entitled to this, you know, I own this, you know, people love me. I have a huge influence. Like, I think he tried to just maybe as self-protection to feel like, you know, I'm, I'm just doing a little show here. You know, I can just, you know, it's nothing important here. And he says some, some of this in the documentary, I'm not a, I'm not here to inspire. I'm not a politician. I'm not a journalist. I'm not a, you know, and of course, I think he's lying about a bunch of that, or at least lying to himself about a bunch of that, you know, because, you know, he did all these things, but I think it was his protective mechanism of kind of saying, guys, you know, we're just making a little show here, you know, I'm just writing a little book and like, it's just not that big of a deal. And, you know, really trying to kind of stay humble to the point where I'm, I kind of wonder if he was kind of too humble about it. I mean, you know, meaning that, you know, he had how it manifested itself is he had imposter syndrome, you know, that he never felt like he really deserved the success, you know, and people told me that, you know, even in 2016, 2017, you know, writers, you know, when they would praise him, he'd be like, oh no, I'm just, I can't believe people even buy my books. You know, I'm always amazed when somebody wants an autograph, you know, this kind of, you know, after 15 years of success, you think he would finally get used to it, but he never did. Yeah, I think he always kind of felt like it was this ephemeral thing that he was getting away with and that he maybe didn't deserve. Yeah, you uh, you just mentioned that he had this kind of like this tight-knit group of people around him. And and one of the more, uh, I think, affecting things about the documentary is, is the kind of... Um, starkness you show the people in his life you don't these people break down at moments when talking about him was there any moment when you're interviewing these people or you're recording these people that were in his life where that caught you off guard with just how emotional it got or uh how deep it got yeah I mean I've been doing documentaries for a long time and I've done a lot of interviews but I realized from the first day that this was not business as usual you know, that what I really did was I stepped into a lot of people going through the process of, you know, grief, you know, of, you know, every stage of, of grief and loss I saw, you know, and I instantly realized that these interviews were going to go much longer than they normally would. And that, you know, and that oftentimes they wouldn't just begin and end with the interview. I would have meals with people beforehand or we'd have coffee or we'd talk on the phone. And then afterwards we would talk and that, that I had kind of become like a grief counselor for a while, um, which was hard, but I was thankful to be given that kind of trust, you know, but I, cause I felt like that was my obligation was just to be there. And, you know, even people like, like Chris and Lydia, the two producers who work with him forever, who kind of put him on TV, um, who are married, said that they had never really talked to each other about Tony's loss. They talked to me first. Wow. Because because you don't often feel like you have permission to, hey, let me just like spend a couple hours dumping out my guts about how I feel about somebody. And I was the guy, first guy that showed up that was like, let's, let's talk about it. Um, and we did, you know, and it was... Yeah, it was it was heavy. And I, so I think it was from day one. I was like, OK, this is this is very different. Do you think that the fact that you were making this movie so soon after played a role in that? Or was it do you think that this would have been a very different movie if you, it was like 10 years from now? 
I think it would be, you know, I think it would be, you know, and I think there are trade-offs, you know, I think, you know, it would, it'd be less raw. Yeah. For sure. But I don't know. I don't know if I would have had any better insight. And in fact, I think with time people may, they tend to kind of, people tend to become a little out of focus. You know, maybe people, they tend to just remember, hang on to the things they want to remember with that much time. So, you know, it would have been different. I don't know if it would have been better or worse, but, you know, and I think it's interesting, even as I was making the film, I mean, I shot interviews over the course of a year and even talking to people over that year, I could see them changing as we were making the film and even showing people in the film, the documentary, you know, we premiered it a few weeks ago and many people in the film were at the premiere at Tribeca. And even seeing kind of where people are at now versus when I shot the interviews was interesting. I mean, it's part of a process, you know, that for, you know, could take years, it could take, you know, decade or more, you know, or it could, or never, you know, I think different people handle these things differently, but I definitely, saw an evolution of emotion happening as we were making the film. I, I think that's that's pretty clear too, because you have some people that, you know, are, are quick with the jokes about, you know, stories about Tony when they were friends. And then other people are just anytime they bring up something specific, they just break down. It's 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 a roller coaster for sure. But you're right, it's very raw and 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 that's pretty great. Um I want to talk probably what I would guess is one of the toughest parts of making this movie, which is the, the inevitable talking about his passing um, only because, you know, there, there's still a mystery is the wrong word, but there's still a lot of unknowns about kind of what went into that. Um, when you're, when you're putting this together, you know, we have the mental illness, which was a clear factor, but when you're putting this together and you're talking with people and, and in the movie, you put together, uh, you know, stories from people who think that there might've been external issues that might've, you know, factored in how difficult was it to thread that needle by, telling the story as we know it without getting into those like TMZ-esque salacious well, details. I mean, honestly, I think it's a kind of like no win situation for yeah. me as a filmmaker, yeah. you know, that, and even, you know, I think people are like, oh, you went way too much into it or, you know, you didn't go far enough. Like I've heard everything and all I can do is say, I look, I spent a lot of time thinking about it and looked at all the evidence and all heard all the voices and, and I just tried to reflect kind of what I felt about it, which was, um, you know, there were all kinds of contributive factors, particularly his kind of state of mind over the last year and kind of him becoming more emotionally unstable. Um, and that um, there's no kind of tidy answer as to why he would do it other than he made a bad decision in the spur of the moment one time and, and it was irreversible. I mean, I know, I mean, I'll say that when, you know, on the day he killed himself, he was making plans for lunch the next week with people. He was giving notes on edits. Wow. I mean, this is not somebody who was planning in a big, you know, premeditated way to kill himself. You know, I think it was literally just, a momentary lapse of judgment, you know, of, of despair, you know, and, and I've been told that, you know, suicidal episodes, when people really get into that state, 
last about 90 minutes, you know, and then it passes. And I know Tony has, had been up against that before, but had never really, you know, had always come out the other side. And I know people close to Tony knew that too. And I think it was just this sense of like, and nobody ever thought that was actually going to happen, but that that was always kind of in the card somewhere is something that potentially could have happened because it had happened before. Right. So just quickly to, to wrap up, I, I'm curious, we talked about how this movie might be different if you made it in 10 years, but 20 years from now, where we're looking back at the life of, you know, somebody's watching Roadrunner for the first time and maybe doesn't even know Anthony Bourdain. What do you, what do you think people should take away from his life? Is it the travel yeah, stuff? 20, is he, 20 years is, from now, are yeah. people going to be watching television 20 years from now? Or are we just well, going we'll to have it? In, our yeah, head? I was going to say, it's going to be implanted in our, in our, you know, cortex. We'll watch it through our eye machines, whatever. But yeah, what do you think, you know, is the takeaway? What, is he going to be mean, the celebrity chef? Is he the traveler? Is he the writer? I mean, he, he certainly helped revolutionize how we think about um, chefs. You know, and I think he's, you know, we've seen that change over the last 20 years. I also think he was really at the forefront of changing how we look at food, you know, and that we, we've seen this revolution in how we now can appreciate things like street food. Yeah. as being meaningful food or ethnic food as being worthy of a Michelin star or a New York Times review. Like that, that has so changed over the last 20 years because 20 years ago, none of that was true. And so I feel like Tony was actually hugely responsible for kind of inverting our food snobbery pyramid and kind of understanding that. Um, but also in terms of kind of personally, the thing I connected to was, did like he, he was an ambassador for curiosity and getting out of your own, you know, house and neighborhood and country and, you know, just getting perspective on your own life. I mean, that's the thing about travel that he often talked about is that, you know, it's not, it's not the experience you have on the road as much as what you take home with you and your newfound perspective. I think that's part of what, what travel does, it gives you perspective. And I think, you know, we just, we live in a world with so many people not really being curious and not really wanting to learn about people on the far side of the planet and dimensionalize them. And, you know, you know, it's, it's, I just feel like he was probably doing more to advocate for those kinds of things than anybody on television. You know, I can't think of anybody else who's ever really shown more of the world to the world than Tony through television. Yeah, that's awesome. He's the reason my wife and I went to Vietnam. So uh, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We went twice and we had to go to all the places that Anthony Bourdain went to. So how was it? Oh, fantastic. I mean, that's what it is. It's it's fantastic. He doesn't he never lied about that stuff. That's for sure. But um, so we got to wrap up. But I want to thank you, uh, Morgan Neville, for joining me and talking about Roadrunner documentary comes out in theaters on the 16th. So uh, definitely everybody go check it out. It's it's great. So thank you for talking. Yeah, great talking to you. Uh,